Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. So welcome one and all back to our lovely little podcast. Today we've got a bonbon of a piece to look into, coming to us from the one and only Hector Berlioz. And we have spoken on Berlioz's life and his pivotal symphony fantastique back in episode 45. Oh, a long time ago. So long please time go ago. back and take a listen there. Yes. Um, you really you need to get some of Berlioz's character from, from that episode. That will give you a lot of context to what we're about to talk about. <laughs> um, and of course, Berlioz was a man about town with several musical friends that we've mentioned in more recent episodes. So you have heard his name also out and about. So this week, we'll zoom into a small section of Berlioz's life and focus on the Hungarian march from Damnation of Faust. And the story of the Hungarian march has many facets to it will begin in 1846, while Berlioz was touring Europe. And by this time, he was a fairly well-established composer in France, out and about, giving performances and soaking up culture. He found himself in the town of Pest in Hungary and was asked to create a special work for the concert program that incorporated a special Hungarian theme. Berlioz selected from many, he picked the Rakowski theme, so-called after the ancient Rakowski family that had ruled over Transylvania from the 1500s to the 1700s. Apparently, Berlioz had sent the work away to the copyist in preparation for the performance, and a notable music critic could not contain himself, simply had to know what this piece would sound like prior to the performance, and so he stopped by the copyist to look at the score. And he was none too pleased. He ended up sending a note to Berlioz asking why such a triumphant national melody was written to be played pianissimo. And Berlioz replied to the critic that he was not reading the whole score, and he should just wait for the performance. Just wait and see. Interesting kind of side anecdote. That's exactly the kind of thing that happens these days with, like, video game leaks. Early things, like early unfinished builds will leak and mm-hmm. people will get really mad because they're unfinished or bad in some way. Mm-hmm. And then it will like ruin the reputation of a developer or ruin a launch. And I'm like, well, it's, it's early. It's not finished. <laughs> right. This isn't what it's going to be. Like, it's not going to come out this way because it's literally, it's bad. That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to get better. We're still working on yeah. it. Interesting anecdote and connection to pop culture there. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) And back then to music. So the performance came and the march was the last piece on the program. In his memoir, Berlioz described the first quiet notes of the melody with the flutes and pizzicato strings sounding out and a hesitant silence coming over the crowd. But as the piece went on, the melody swelled into a fugue and finally the most dramatic coda And the crowd went wild. Berlioz looked to the critic who was trembling in his seat. The cries of the crowd rang so loud that the orchestra had to stop the music and start again. It was, by (laughs) all accounts, 
a smashing success. <laughs> One would say so. My goodness. Upon leaving the town, Berlioz was asked to please leave his manuscript so that it could be put on display so the townspeople could forever remember the great orchestral work. It became a national centerpiece, essentially. But that wasn't the last of this little piece. Thanks to its stupendous popularity, Berlioz sought out a way to promote it to even more people, namely his French audiences. Now, it just so happened that around the same time, Berlioz was working fervently on his adaptation of Goethe's Faust. Years ago, when he was just a young man in his early 20s and attending medical school, if you remember our biography, Berlioz first encountered a French translation to Goethe's epic poem. According to his memoir, Berlioz was so obsessed with this work that he read it all the time at home school out in the streets in the theater he couldn't get enough <laughs> he definitely related to the faustian character god's favorite deserving of success but oh, ultimately sure. <laughs> but ultimately facing an eternal struggle definition of the struggling artist that berlioz pictured himself so remember berlioz was really dramatic he literally wrote a whole symphonic poem to his crush it was quite fantastic uh -huh. <laughs> Again, episode 45. Yes. And by the 1840s, this wasn't actually Berlioz's first crack at writing about Faust. For right after he had finished reading that pivotal Goethe work, he essentially scribbled out eight scenes from Faust, which he sent off to be published. This, unfortunately, was not a hit, and Berlioz realized this immediately. And for a few years, he actually had a little side quest to find and destroy as many copies of the eight scenes from Faust as he possibly could. However, you know the old saying, which applied to his uh, Symphony Fantastique as well, if at first you don't succeed, write a whole other symphony about it. <laughs> and for his 1846 work, The Damnation of Faust, he actually got it right. This was a four-part dramatic legend, not quite an opera, but not quite a symphony either. Potentially, you could compare it to a cantata? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the first part is an introduction to the main character, Faust, and the second through fourth sections are a retelling of the Faustian fable. The story in Berlioz's work isn't quite the same as Goethe's. Berlioz himself stated it wasn't meant to be exactly the same, just to have taken inspiration for the written work and circumvent copyright laws to be transformative. I'm not sure if they were that strict <laughs> about copyright back then, but okay. <laughs> now, this did get him in a bit of trouble with German critics who were offended that a Frenchman could change such a beloved tale. Berlioz snapped back at this criticism with, quote, as though there were not other settings of Faust than Goethe's of course, referencing the dozens of other Faustian works. But we're getting into the weeds, because how does this all relate to the Hungarian march? Well, in one such addition to the Faustian tale was that Berlioz decided to set it in Hungary. And apparently the Germans did not like this setting, but Berlioz said that it was totally plausible that such a character as Faust would have traveled around to really any place he liked, so why not Hungary? And so, as a dramatic closing number for the first part of the work, Berlioz edited and inserted the famous Hungarian march, meant to show Faust observing the Hungarian military marching joyously off to battle. Sadly, the Great March wasn't enough to save the damnation of Faust. 
Berlioz incorrectly predicted that his fame in Paris would sell big tickets. Unfortunately, it had been a few years since he'd had a large stage production, with his last being Romeo and Juliet in 1839, seven years earlier, and the French public had basically forgotten him. But luckily, thanks to his revolutionary orchestrations, Berlioz became basically a household name later in the 1900s. And even if the entire damnation of Faust isn't performed always, the Hungarian march still riles up the crowds just like it did at its premiere. So now let's see for ourselves what's so cool about this march. As aforementioned, after a brief trumpet fanfare, the Rakowski theme is first heard piano in just the flutes, piccolo, and clarinets. The trumpets and double reeds play little marching quarter notes under the melody, and the strings just have little pizzicatos. And the melody itself is in A minor, but we are using the A melodic minor mode, which gives a distinct Hungarian sound. The scale is essentially a minor scale until the fifth, and then it's almost a normal major scale with the sixth and seventh raised, giving us kind of that mixed sound there. Another hallmark of this work, commonly heard in the Hungarian style, is quasi-syncopation. We hear these running eighth notes in groups of three, that is, they change direction every three notes. Though we are not changing the meter, the quick turnaround gives the impression of a triplet feel rather than a duple feel. The next phrase of the march theme is still just in the high woodwinds, but the coronets get a little quiet line in the background as well. As it's written, the melody is quarter notes on beats one and three, with rests in between. Then there's a long held note and a small pickup sixteenth to the next measure. This is a very cute rendition of what could be something otherwise very grand because we've modulated to E major, which is the fifth of A, and the notes of the melody are just an E major arpeggio moving upwards. Just imagine, instead of these separated and quiet quarter notes, if Berlioz had instead written sustained half notes with full orchestral chords underneath, that would have been a very different and very imposing sound. Now, as we move along, the first theme returns, and perhaps we could be tricked that we're just hearing traditional ABA form before Berlioz moves into the development. But it is not so. The orchestration master surprises us by having the strings suddenly enter in with bows, not pizzicato, and start to develop the theme right here while we're still basically in the introduction. Berlioz continues this section with more dramatic extremes, jumping back and forth each measure with just pianissimo woodwinds to forte orchestra. And that 
that was all actually the A section of the piece. We will now move into the B section, which changes keys to A major from that A minor that we started with. And Berlioz also introduces a new theme that could sort of be thought of as a reworking of the first theme. They both have similar motifs that run through. There is upward eighth notes on the weak beats that then resolve down on downbeats. And similarly, we continue to have the dichotomy of loud and soft. The next bombastic section begins with the brass on a downward scale that is soon followed in canon by the woodwinds. This is the first obvious counterpoint that Berlioz has used. This section also begins on a minor scale, but finishes on a major scale, giving the impression of triumphant victory. And getting out of this section, Berlioz catches us off guard again. In all the past, quote, second endings of the repeats, the music has resolved the same way as the first ending, but then just has a pickup into the next section. But this time, instead of that nice, simple resolution, the violins actually continue on with some rolling three-grouped eighth notes again that actually help us modulate back to A minor. And now that we're back, it's time for more development. Sort of. We're back with our first theme, but just the first few measures of it. Under a roiling sea of string triplets, the melody is passed around, beginning in the low strings. And the snippet of the melody gets cut shorter and shorter as it moves upward and around the circle of fifths. until finally the simmering orchestra builds up to the loudest statement we've heard yet. We have the trumpet fanfare from the beginning now written out in full loud orchestration. And some fun low instruments also get a say in the matter. We get to hear from the bassoon, tuba, trombone, cellos, and contrabasses. Always a fun time when the tuba gets the melody. <laughs> and Berlioz was one of the first to use the tuba. And to lead up an even more dramatic iteration of the theme, Berlioz has the melody voiced in diminished chords throughout the orchestra. Until we hit the boiling point and the simple quiet melody from the beginning has returned 
turning into the full-voiced fortissimo statement that the crowds had been waiting for. And of note, we also hear a lot from the percussion section here, especially the cymbals. This was a very characteristic, quote, Hungarian sound in classical music, which, side note as well, this was also popular in Turkish-style marches as an iconic sound. Think of, like, Mozart's Turkish march. And just when we thought we'd heard it all, Berlioz provides a rousing coda. He gets into it in a fun way, too, just repeating the end of the main theme a few times before pulling out all the stops. The orchestra runs wild with snippets of melody, jumping from one motif to another until we conglomerate into chords that take us out on a lovely 5 to 1 cadence. That was fun. That was fun. (laughs) Much as the audiences of Hungary loved that march, I'm I'm sure you can see why it was so thrilling for them to have heard it. You know, one of their, you know, a, a favorite national tune, essentially. It's always fun to hear a song that you know written out in a really grand way. It is, and I love how Berlioz has just, you know, kind of stuck it, tacked it on to this other story that he wrote into because he thought it would, you know, help boost the, uh, help boost <laughs> the popularity of that piece. It's, yeah. it's, it's such a Berlioz thing to do, and one of the reasons why his character is so interesting to investigate. <laughs> he was an interesting guy. All those, yes. those French romantics were a little fun. <laughs> And if you want to hear more about other interesting French romantics, uh, you can go back and listen to... We did episodes on Satie, right? Oh, yeah. We must have at some point. Yeah. Um, that's <laughs> um, an I interesting character have, as well. We have Debussy, who's not... Yeah. I mean, he's interesting, but not like as quirky as some of them. <laughs> um, gosh, I know we've done some other French romantics as well. Yes. They're fun. That's a fun bunch, I'd say. It is a fun bunch. And maybe and if we'll get into more this coming year. Yes. So go ahead and stick stick around. Follow us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us reviews if you've liked this fun bunch. And uh, share us with friends, family members, like-minded colleagues, all that good marketing stuff. <laughs> Thank you. I'm getting worse and worse at the outro as time goes on. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Hungarian March was performed by the DuPage Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. You can find the Coffeehouse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.